From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and we're excited for episode 17. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas of health, energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. Um, professionally, in spite of the fact that I'm a supplement minimalist, this is a product that I recommend to just about all of our clients as I view it a lot more like whole food nutritional insurance. Um, its ingredients have been carefully selected. Um, you get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, um, you get prebiotics, probiotics, um, and you won't find any harmful chemicals, artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, sweeteners, or any kind of added sugars. Um, works really well for folks who are gluten and dairy free. Um, and I love it personally for younger athletes who may have holes in their diets. Um, and college and pro athletes who may have complex travel schedules where they can't always get quality food while they're on the road. Um, on a personal level, I use this every single day of the week. Um, I have uh, three kids under the age of five. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an avid lifter. I split my, my time between two parts of the country. So needless to say, life's stressful and sleep deprivation is a real thing. So with that in mind, I, I lean really heavily on Athletic Greens for my immune support and really believe it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of this crazy lifestyle. So get your vital nutrition in 30 seconds or less at athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, where you can claim your special gift of 23 travel packets. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-G-R-E-E-N-S.com backslash C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. And you can claim your special gift to get 20 free travel packets. Today's guest is a relief pitcher for the Oakland Athletics. He was drafted in the seventh round of the 2011 Major League Baseball draft by the A's and later traded to the Nationals where he made his Major League debut in 2014. Thereafter, he was traded back to the Athletics and last year he had a breakout season in 2018 when he became an all-star behind a 9-2 record with a .78 ERA and 38 saves. He wound up with 100 strikeouts and 80 innings pitched and finished 6th in the American League Cy Young voting. We're excited to welcome to the show, Blake Trinan. All right, welcome to the podcast, Blake. Hey, how's it going? I'm good, man. Thanks for doing this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, So obviously, we've gotten to see, you know, Blake Trinan since he was a a double-A pitcher um, who dropped everything and and moved to Massachusetts, the middle of nowhere, to to spend a a cold off-season in the snow. But, you know, even though we can speak to that, we can't even possibly begin to do your story justice from... You know, the being a high school guy who was not heavily recruited by any stretch of the imagination. So I think it's the most hackneyed question in history. Can you tell us about yourself? But can you please tell your story for those listening, how you got to Pro Bowl and how you wind up where you are? Yeah, hopefully you guys have some time to listen. <laughs> so it'll it'll take a little bit, but we'll we'll dive into it. Um, yeah, so I mean, I grew up in Osage City, Kansas, and uh, you know, I uh, I think I'll start with kind of like where where I was in high school as a sophomore, you know, I, uh, my, my health kind of took a a dive and I was, uh, you know, pre-diabetic state, (laughs) my weight jumped all the way up to like 240 and I was like five, six. And, uh, you know, I, uh, 
I had like juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at a at a mild case, so like nothing crazy. They couldn't quite confirm or deny that I had it because my symptoms were so strong. So it's kind of like this overweight, uh, borderline kind of crippled feeling kid <clears throat> that had like uh, you know issues with you know flirting with diabetes, and I I kind of uh, I kind of had like a really really big scare at that point. So I, they they forced me to like get into this exercising habit of you know, just do something active. And I started running and, and watching what I ate because really the issue stemmed from, uh, eating issues. And, you know, as a kid, you don't ever pay attention to it. Growing up in Kansas, you just, I mean, country cooking and, and snacks is kind of how it goes. And I got into the video game trend. So that kind of didn't help me either. Um, I know there's a lot of, a lot of guys in sports now to play video games, but for me, it wasn't the greatest, uh, wasn't the greatest, um, contributing factor to my, my health issues. So, uh, I started, started working out more regularly, mainly was just running the main drag of my hometown. And, and I, uh, I dropped a bunch of weight and decided to go back out for baseball my, uh, junior year of high school. Um, and like you said, you know, I wasn't heavily recruited and, you know, basically because I didn't know how to train as an athlete. I just was, I had a passion to play baseball and I, um, just would go out and play with my buddies and, and just try to throw the ball as hard as I could. And, um, you know, out of high school, I was maybe throwing, you know, like, uh, 78 to 82. I think I topped out at 83 at a K state camp one time. And, uh, I, the only place I had to play was at Baker university in Kansas. And it's a NAI school in Baldwin city, just about 20 minutes South of Lawrence where Kansas university is. And, um, pretty much that whole year, it was challenging for me. I loved the coaching staff. The school was great, but ultimately it didn't have my academic focus that I was passionate about or really seeing any gains on the field. So um, I was on the JV team, maybe started, or not really even started, but threw in three games on the JV side for about five innings, seven innings, and uh, and uh, decided I was kind of wasting time and money and efforts while I was there. So I decided to transfer to the University of Arkansas. And, you know, when I was at Baker, there was a guy there named Jared White who had uh, caught for the University of Arkansas his freshman year and then transferred around and found his way to Baker University through some events that had happened with him. And uh, he was working with me on the side, and I was trying to train myself up to get a chance to walk on at the University of Arkansas. And I was such a naive uh, kid at the time because I had no idea how big of a business you know, baseball really was the college level, let alone Arkansas, which is kind of a mecca, you know, when it comes to to baseball at the college level. And um, but I worked I worked my tail off, and I got in contact with a couple of guys uh, that had previously played there, and was trying to just give myself the best opportunity. And when I when I got there, I uh, went to the to the office at uh, I think it's Bomb Stadium, and um, the secretary she told me to come back. I think it was something like August twenty. Let's just say 27th. It was early, like late August, right before school started, or right as school started. And so I came back and was there to schedule a tryout time. And uh, and she she said, "Well, let me get you in contact with one of the coaches." So the, one of the coaches came in and he was like, "Hey, look, man, uh, what can I do for you?" And I said, "I'm just here to try out, you know, schedule time for a walk on tryout." And and he said, uh, "You know, look, we can't really." given we don't really do to walk on tryouts we can't give somebody that opportunity because if we were then the whole state of arkansas would be wanting to try out for the razorbacks and we'd 
be here for three weeks straight and we wouldn't get anything done. I said, well, can I talk to Dave Van Horn? You know, he, uh, he knows this Jared White guy and, you know, I don't know how strong the connection was, but, um, he told me to go talk to him and that, um, to drop his name and he said, well, he's on a recruiting visit right now. So, um, we're probably not going to have an opportunity for, for you to meet him. So hope, hope, hope for the best and see you on your way. And, you know, I'm not dumb. I know who Dave Van Horn is. I was so excited to try to walk on and I did my research to see what he looked like. And I saw him walk right into the office and sit down at his desk. And I kind of got the feeling of what was going on. And yeah. I wasn't very bold in my yeah. ambition. So I didn't, I didn't really press the envelope and I just, I just kind of walked out and kind of had this moment <clears throat> where, uh, baseball was kind of over. And, um, I just felt like God put it on my heart to just, you know, go and train. And at this time training for me was so like vague. Um, and everybody says, you know, don't do bench press, don't do this, don't lift like this. Cause you're only going to make it worse for pitching. And I kind of just said, bump it. I'm going to just go get in a weight room and try to get as strong as I can. But I had no clue what I was doing. And, uh, I was going to try to walk on again the next year or find somewhere. And if it didn't work out, then I was going to be done and just, pursue my academic focus of landscape architecture and uh and move on so the year goes the first semester goes by and um feel like i was doing really well in landscape architecture and uh made some good friends and i uh just felt like you know god was putting it on my heart to play baseball and i'm like why the heck do i still feel like baseball is what i should be doing and i just couldn't explain it so i went out with one of my buddies <clears throat> at the university of arkansas there to play catch and it was like the ball was throwing me. And it was like maybe 45 degrees outside. And he's like, why are we out here? I said, I just feel like I need to be throwing a baseball. So um, I go home for Christmas break. And this this uh, guy from the University of Kansas who was drafted by the Marlins came by. And he uh, he said, uh, you know, I'm going to do a pitching clinic. And I paid 20 bucks to go down and throw in front of him. But the night before, I decided I was going to uh, go down and throw on my own and see if I even had a chance to have a discussion with this guy about, uh, about, you know, having connections to throw somewhere, whether it be at a D2, D1, wherever. Right. And I'm throwing a baseball into this tarp. It's like one of those rubber mats that has the square on it. And, uh, I felt like I was maybe throwing the ball 70 miles an hour. And I woke up the next morning hanging and I, I went in and threw, and I don't know where it came from, but I, at that point, I guess I did have a curveball, mm-hmm. and it was the best curveball I'd ever thrown in my life. <laughs> and this guy, this guy was watching me, and at the end of it, I was just kind of hopeful. It was like, "Hey, do you have any connections to play in like a summer league to help you know boost my my uh, I guess my stock for somebody to see me to play?" And he's like, "I don't have any connections summer league." He's like, "I have some connections. You know, I played at KU. I know the guy that's the coach at Fort Hay State, and." Uh, He's like in South Dakota State. Or those are the three guys I, I know that I could help you with. And so he did some digging, and um, and then I had to come back like the following weekend after school had started for the second semester at Arkansas. I came back to Kansas and threw in another one of his clinics, and he took you know velocity readings for me, and I was like. <sighs> 82 84 maybe touching 85 and how are you physically or how tall how heavy you are relative to you know where you are now versus high school at that point yeah so i guess i left that void out so after i started working out i dropped a lot of weight and i grew Mm -hmm. um but i graduated probably graduated high school probably like six foot like 185 Mm -hmm. and then um at that point i'm probably like six three Mm -hmm. and uh let's say maybe 
maybe 195. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but I asked him, I remember after I threw and he got those velo readings and I was like, can you bump the velo a little bit? <laughs> Cause I think I was like, if you feel like I, I'll, I'll be able to throw harder, can you just bump it a few notches? Like, can we say it's like 85 to 87? He's like, yeah, I got you. So, so he sent it out to, you know, the schools and KU was like, no, we don't, we don't really have room for scholarship. And I was like, I wasn't even thinking scholarship. I just want a place to play. And KU would have been good. Even though I'm a K-State fan, mm-hmm. KU would have been great because it's close to home. Mm-hmm. And they had landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, he, and he sent it to South Dakota State. And they seemed interested. And the one thing I'll say before the, I, I go any further is when I was going through this whole process of, of trying to find a school to go play for, I was sitting at Arkansas. You know, I feel like I was probably top in my class design-wise. Mm-hmm. Um and I was doing really well with landscape architecture. And I prayed and I asked God to, to show me some clarity. And I asked, I said, hey, if this is something that I should be doing, I don't really want to leave Arkansas unless it's a Division One opportunity and they have landscape architecture. And so when he said KU, I was fired up. I was like, that's D1 and they got landscape architecture. And they said no. And I was like, crap. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh, And so he did some digging and he's like, hey, you know, South Dakota State just turned D1. They're now eligible for, you know, tournament play and they're in a Division I conference now. Um, He's like, but I can't tell you about their academics. Mm -hmm. And so I go back to Arkansas and, you know, fate would have it. There's a a transfer student in the third year and she transferred from South Dakota State. And I said, hey, does you know, were you studying landscape architecture out there? She's like, yeah, but it, it was more of a design build program. It's not an accredited program, but they have landscape architecture. That's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, you know, I, I prayed this incredibly <laughs> steep prayer. Some guy who's never even sniffed a varsity at the NAIA level mm-hmm. has an opportunity to go play at Division One baseball and it has landscape architecture. It's like, I'd be slapping, you know, God in the face. I feel like if I don't pursue this opportunity after praying that and it came through, so I, you know, pretty much was in, you know, a very small contact window with uh, Richie Price at South Dakota State because there was, you know, communication, uh, you know, blocks through through the NCAA where you can only talk to him so much per month. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't realize at the time, I thought I was signing with him, right? So I'm all excited. But apparently when you're a walk-on, you don't sign. You just like, <laughs> you, know, you come up. And I, was, I like, again, I'm so naive. I have no idea. So I go up there with my dad, like after, after the summer. Um, so, you know, so summer rolls around, the next year's rolling up, I go up there to, uh, enroll and go through orientation and all that stuff. And, um, this is my junior year of college at this point. Um, and I call Richie, I was like, Hey Richie, you know, where am I supposed to meet you at to sign, you know, this intent form? And he's like, dude, you don't sign, you're just a walk on. So just show up and you'll be good. I was like, what the heck, what am I doing? I was like, I could have, you know, one bad fall and be released here. And so, thankfully at the time, like I really didn't, that really wasn't a thought process. It was just, I'm on this team, I'm playing. And I had to redshirt, unfortunately. Well, fortunately and unfortunately. At the time, I I hated it because I thought I was going to get a chance to compete at a Division I level. But, you know, playing on the JV team, or I guess just being in sports in general at the NAIA level, transferring up to Arkansas being a D1, even though I wasn't playing, my athletic clock had already started. So being at a D1, not playing, but already having an athletic clock, I, going from D1 to D1, I had to sit out a year. So it was kind of a weird twist, but it worked out for the best. And, uh, you know, that following, that, that whole spring to 
or I guess fall to spring of 2008 and nine, I think would have been the year. Um, I, uh, I pretty much just was killing the weight room and trying to put weight on. And, um, you know, I saw gains just from, from training better and our, and it wasn't baseball training, you know, um, our strength coach up there, uh, specializes in, you know, powerlifting in the, in the form of, you know, football and track. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some benefits there, I think for explosive training. And I think that's what that blessed me to throw harder is I was doing Olympic lifts. My form was pretty good, but there wasn't like the stability aspect of like what you bring to the table, what I learned going through you. And how tall, and, how tall are you at this point? Cause obviously you, you, you said you were six, three. Yeah. I'm the same. I was the same height I am now probably yeah, six, four. six, four at this point. Okay. And, um, you know, my weight got up to probably like anywhere from two Oh five to two fifteen from the following two years of my career there. Um, but you know, that, that year that I, uh, that I had to sit out, I remember setting goals for myself. I was like, you know, if I get there and I'm, I'm here for baseball, like obviously I want to pursue a profession here and get my degree. Um, you know, I want my first year to be 88 to 91, my following year to be 91, 94, my third year, you know, try to touch 97, 98. Like, and I know those are extreme goals for somebody who tops out at 84. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but you know, you've got to dream big and have like big, I mean, I, I, I say pray big because in those situations, if somebody were to look at me, like you were to look at me and I'm throwing 84 at like six foot one, right? Mm-hmm. Like this guy maybe tops out at 90, maybe with the right training. But if I pray something big like that and it comes through in a way that nobody can understand, then you have to know that God's at work. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like where I was at. Is And I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, God came through for me. My first year there, I was 85 to 88. But in that fall... You know, when I came back, I uh, I guess I have to kind of take a step back here. When I came back from that fall of my first year at South Dakota State, I had this rotator cuff tendonitis. And, you know, some of the doctors there thought I had a slap tear. And I said, let's get an MRI. The guy was ready to cut me open without even having an MRI. And I was like, let's get an MRI. And it was just rotator cuff tendonitis. So I had to do some, like, some rehab stuff. And when I came back from that, I was throwing like 88 to 90 and it was huge for me. Like the fact that I saw a nine in front of something, (laughs) you know, I never thought that would happen. So Mm -hmm. I go and train, um, that summer in Laramie, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And the pitching coach there was Justin Wickert. And he, uh, you know, he, he was a big believer. People don't throw hard because they don't intend to throw hard. You have this dynamic that you're taught growing up is to pitch, hit a spot, hit a spot. And that's great, and you need to learn to do that. He goes, but a lot of people focus on just, like, getting to the spot as opposed to, like, throwing the crap out of the baseball and learning to hit a spot after you have arm strength. And so that whole summer we just spent learning to throw with intent, and I came back to South Dakota State in my first um, my first fall ball game. I was, like, 90 to 93, and I was like, that's incredible. But I was a little bit not a little bit I was probably a lot of bit erratic I couldn't hit a spot you know if I'm trying to go arm side I was just trying to throw it over the plate if I was trying to go glove side I was just trying to throw it over the plate and there's like no process to it but that started something of learning how to throw with intent and training my body to handle more of an effort level than it had before so once I got used to to throwing with that effort level and intent then I can start tweaking it to home 
the strike zone a little bit better, learning what mechanics are going to help me be in a better position to, to be consistent around the plate. So that was my first year of playing at South Dakota State. It was 2010, and um, I was a weekend. I was like the number four starter, you know, and it went really well against Murray State, and they ended up slotting me into like a, a Saturday starter. And I went, I think I I'm trying to think my record that year is maybe like six and three or seven and three or I don't know, but it went, it went really well. And I ended up getting drafted by the Marlins in the uh, 23rd round. And my velocity had jumped up to, you know, I probably consistently was sitting 90 to 94, but I would top out at like 97. Mm-hmm. And so the Marlins drafted me. And you're, uh, you're a little bit heavier at this point, too? Were you, you, know, you mentioned no, you were like 210? I'm not you're, heavy at this point at all. This I'm is like, like 210, give or take? Yeah, 210. I'm, yeah. I look at pictures. I was a bean pole. <laughs> I, uh, I needed to put more weight on. But, you know, I was drafted in the 23rd round. And at the time, I had gone to my summer league team, which was Athletes in Actions. Mm-hmm. Athletes in Action that was going to go to the, uh, Alaska. Mm-hmm. They started out in San Jose. And uh, we were learning how to give our testimony so that when we uh, interact with other teams, we can share our faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't really know what my testimony was. And I were going through, like, hey, what's your life verse? What's, you know, how, how are you going to relate your life to somebody else or have, like, have like a, a good conversation with somebody about your faith? And for me, it was all for, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was so nervous. And I told myself I wasn't going to leave South Dakota State for baseball unless I was drafted in the top 20 rounds. Well, lo and behold, I get drafted in the 23rd round. And I'm like, what a, you know, like, do I take it? Do I not? And then these thoughts start swirling, you know, like, what if I get hurt and I never get a chance to get drafted again? Like, I know my position. I'm at a small school. Like, there's only four teams that were on me. Like, there's a chance that I probably never get drafted if I get hurt. So, you know, I need to take this. So I fly to Florida and, uh, and I, and I sit in the clubhouse. It was actually right where your facility is now. In, in, yeah, in Jupiter. In Jupiter, yeah. Um, it was like maybe the first or second year of their new facility. And uh, I remember sitting in there, and they call us in. We're like, hey, we're going to go get physicals. And then so everybody takes their physicals. And we come back, and everybody passed. And they had me and one other guy. And they said, hey, you guys, we're going to have some doctors review a couple things, and we'll go over it tomorrow. So everybody gets to go like pick out a glove that they want and like they're all excited. They're starting this process and I got to sleep on it at night. Like, dude, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I not be signed right now? And I'm sitting in my room. I didn't sleep once and I was so nervous. Um, and I go in the next day and this kid goes in ahead of me and he comes out just steaming. He's like, you know, I got a pin in my foot and they said I should be in so much pain, but I don't feel anything. So they're, they're releasing me. And I was like, dude, I'm sorry. And so, like, here I am freaking out. Like, what the heck's wrong with me that I don't know about? And uh, I go in there, and they're like, hey, you know, we got some good news and bad news. And, you know, uh, <clears throat> the good news is, is man, you don't, you don't have any signs of tears or anything. Everything looks strong and, and good. But the bad news is there's some inflammation in your shoulder, and our doctors just don't want to take a risk on it. And I was like, inflammation? Like, I don't know a lot about that, but in my mind, it's like, give me some, give me some ibuprofen and let's, let's go. Like, what are we doing? And, you know, I'm sitting here watching guys that are drafted, walking out, needing Tommy John or, you know, nothing against those guys. But I'm trying to wrap my head around the situation. Like, 
how how am I not worth taking a risk? And so, I mean, I was, I said, so what do I do? Like, where do we go from here? Like, well, we got a first class ticket for you to go back home. There'll be a, t- a cab outside in like 15 minutes for you and just pack your stuff. And like, I don't really know what else to tell you. And I was like, I asked the guy, I said, can I play college baseball? I still have one year of eligibility. And he goes, that's not for me to decide, man. You're going to have to take that up with your school. So I'm like, crud, what the heck? So I go outside, I call my parents, you know, I'll be honest, I'll be open. I was, I was in tears. I was, I was shook. I had no idea what to do. I was like, I can't go back to college. Like I'm already, already got drafted. Like I lost my eligibility and I didn't know at the time, but it was a blessing. I didn't have an agent and I was there for less than 48 hours. So, um, I retained eligibility, but the only thing that was in the loops was, am I going to have to pay back what they paid for me to come down there, which was upwards of like $1,400, you know, they gave me my own room at a Hilton Garden Inn. They paid for my first class flight. They gave me food vouchers. You know, like all this stuff is adding up. Yep. And I'm like, dude, this is this is a lot of money that I can't afford at the time. And um, so the compliance officers were like, look, we're just going to run up the door of diligence and see if you can come back. You might have to pay back what they offered you while you were there. But when it comes to other terms, you didn't have an agent. You were there for less than 48 hours. Like, you should be fine. So... Instead of playing summer baseball, I just went back and I uh, and I worked for um, South Dakota State and made money to help pay that back. But you know, when I left that facility, I remember calling my chaplain for the athletes in action team, and I wish I could remember his name. Um, there was a head coach, and it was his brother was the chaplain. And at the time, I was just like lost, and I I told him what was going on, and he's like, I don't have much for you, but. You know, the one thing I have is this verse, and it's Proverbs 3, 5, 6. Um, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all ways acknowledge him first, and he'll set your path straight. I was like, what the heck? Like, if I'm going to look at that verse, it, it makes sense, but, like, I'm not applying it. Like, it's totally different than the situation I'm going through. Like, how is that supposed to comfort me? Like, I picked up everything from Arkansas to go pursue this passion of playing baseball at South Dakota State. I get drafted, then they cut me. Like I literally changed the whole direction of my life just to go and say I I'm not good enough, right? Like I'm shook. And my parents come and pick me up. I land in like Kansas City at like two in the morning. My parents pick me up, and uh, you know we're probably. Have you been to Kansas City? Like yep. you're familiar with like the surrounding area? Absolutely, dude. The uh, when you're heading south and west towards Topeka slash Ottawa down to my hometown of Osage City, there's literally nothing in between on mm-hmm. I-35. Yep. There's like, maybe Ottawa's your first town and it's like 40 minutes. Well, it's actually an hour away from the airport. Mm-hmm. And then Ottawa's another hour from my hometown. So between Kansas City and Ottawa, two in the morning, literally nobody on the road, telling my parents about you know how my day was just cruddy and they kind of already knew because obviously they picked me up from the airport. And I told him about the chaplain and the verse he gave me. You know, my my parents raised me in a in a Christian household, which, you know, it was great, and I'm so grateful for it. But I had to make my faith my own at some point, and you know, I was just sharing with them kind of like what I was going through, and told them the Bible verse and how it's Proverbs three five six and what it meant, and literally out of nowhere, no cars, one car comes driving by, it's a red Cavalier, and on the back of the license plate it said P R O V three five six. Wow, And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And I'd never really had a tangible moment where God was like, I'm with you, don't worry. 
but that right there got me through whatever, like whatever was ahead of me, you know, like the the days to come, like the next year at South Dakota State, like that was, that was a moment in my life where I was like, okay, can't really freak out about the things you can't control, but like God's saying, I got you, don't worry about it. Like, just trust that I have a plan for you and it's perfect. And so I went back to school. Um, I just worked uh, at the university for the summer. I mowed lawns and made sure our field was in the best shape possible. And um, I remember doing a lot of preventative work on my shoulder because that was the one thing they said had inflammation. So I was like, oh, I guess if I'm not going to play, I'm just going to build the crap out of it. So I did and um, came back that following year and I was sitting – I remember my first outing was at University of Texas Arlington and um, I played Missouri State and like I was pretty sore. I don't think my arm felt like it was quite ready, but my mom and dad came up to me afterwards and, you know, I'd gone like maybe six, six or seven innings and, you know, one run or no run baseball and a lot of ground balls. And my mom and dad were like, you know, how are you feeling today? And I said, honestly, I was pretty sore going into the game. They said, well, you were sitting 94, 96. Like, that's pretty incredible. Like, how cool to see where you're at last year and where you are now. like So the whole year ended up being kind of like this huge blessing where I got to go back and get my degree. Um, I uh, My velocity went up. I got put on the top 200 prospect list. I ended up getting drafted higher by the, uh, by the Oakland Athletics. And, uh, you know, it's crazy to think that no matter how bad that situation with Miami felt like at the time um, – it all, it all worked out for something way better. So I ended up, you know, I was throwing harder, got drafted higher. And, um, you know, I learned a lot about myself and about my faith, uh, through that whole process. And, you know, there's a lot of nicks, nicks and bruises along the way, but, um, yeah, that's where I, that's how I ended up getting drafted by the A's. And then, you know, eventually traded over to the nationals where, you know, they blessed me with an opportunity to make it to the big leagues and, and work through some stuff there. And then, um, getting traded back to Oakland and, you know, it's kind of like everything comes in full circle and, you know, last year was quite the blessing. And then this year, you know, we all have, we have some pretty lofty, uh, goals, even though the season hasn't quite started the way we want it, you know, like we've got some, some pretty, pretty extensive goals here and just trying to see that through. But, um, that's kind of the journey in a nutshell. That's awesome. I mean, and the cool thing about that, I'm literally like writing notes as we go, um, you know, and I, I knew your story a little bit and that's in, in way more detail, but I never had heard the story with a, a lot of the quantifiable factors in it, like when the velocity came and where it improved and all that. And yeah. what's cool about that story is you can take 500 different messages, right? Everything from faith to arm care, to body weight changes, to throwing with intent, to perseverance, all that stuff. The thing that jumped out at me, um, this is me being kind of a nerd, so I don't want to. I don't want to steal the show. <laughs> this is the Blake Trinan show, but no, this is you know, Chris's one, one of the number one of the numbers we use a lot with our athletes, and, and Josh Heenan has has talked about this as well. Is I think two point seven five times body weight, uh, sorry, times height in inches is a great body weight predictor. So your your classic example is like, you know, we like to see our pitchers at six foot three at 
at like 205 or above. And if you actually look at your numbers, like you talked about being six foot 185 when you graduated high school. So you were like 13 pounds under where that, you know, kind of formula would put you. And then you were 6'3", 195 when you were pitching at 83 to 85, kind of after your sophomore year in high school. So you were 11 pounds under the 206 that we would have normally seen, right? And then you talked about when, you know, you put that crazy summer of hard work in and you, know, you came back, you were 6'4", about 210. Um, that was like the first time when you were really kind of like right in line with where you would want to be. Like 209 is kind of the baseline of where we like to see people at, at 6'4". Now, you know, you're... You know, you're a little bit heavier, I'm sure, that last year, and all of a sudden it's 94 to 96, and then you, you know, you add maybe another inch and a couple extra pounds, you, you know, you move from being a starter to a reliever, and here you are, you know, touching 100 in the big leagues. It's, it's like actually a remarkably linear relationship between your body weight and, you know, your, your velocity over the years, and yours was just a little bit more complex because you're a guy who, you know, you kind of grew late. You know, most guys are almost like full grown at age 18, 19, and you kept shooting up as you went through college so it's like it's actually right on point um and obviously the, the lessons of throwing with intent and all that the other one that i thought was really cool is you said you know 90 to 94 you know before you're drafted by the marlins then it became four to six and the marlins experience taught you arm care and i can't tell you how many times we've seen guys who have gone through rehab or you know pseudo rehab and learned about how their arm works and all of a sudden dedicated themselves and there's a there's a few extra ticks in there too it's just you know how you well you transfer force and all that so like yeah you know, it's a perfect example of like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger you you know over and over again it made you better year after year well yeah and you know after you know even playing in the minor leagues mm-hmm. i went down to what 88 to 93 as a starter in mm-hmm. Oakland mm-hmm. and um, then I was traded over to the Nationals and then there was a a throwing throwing program style that allowed my velocity to peak a little higher where I was like 93 to 96 as a starter mm-hmm. and you know maybe touch a couple seven and eights every now and again depending how fresh I felt mm-hmm. um, but then after training with you actually I think I think there's a the weight thing is is new to me like understanding how you were translating that right there is huge like that's great like i had no idea that there was a correlation with the studies that you have Mm -hmm. and that's awesome because it actually backs up that study Mm -hmm. i think there's also something to be said in the sense that you learn out of like firing patterns and how how to be more efficient with your firing patterns Mm -hmm. um and what helped me was training with you in Boston, I'm not throwing like a soliciting pitch here for your viewers, but <laughs> well, <thank> like, you. <laughs> but like with training with you, because there was lifts that correlated with strength that was functional, like with throwing, not so much just being strong in the weight room or trying to look good with your shirt off or whatever. But like, it was, it was, how can I train to make me more consistent and durable throughout the season? And, um, a lot of your core exercises and your exercises in general, like with, it connects your lower half to your upper half and and that's through your core and the the combination moves that you have really helped me with being i i feel like more of an effortless type style delivery mm-hmm. i feel like i'm throwing the crap out of the ball but yeah. a lot of people will say look this guy doesn't look like he's trying to throw the baseball hard and here it comes at whatever velocity that was my next um, question for you I, i'm actually really intrigued about it because uh, to be honest i hear that in fact, our um, our pitching coordinator, Christian Wonders, here in Massachusetts, sent me a text literally last week. He was like, how the heck does Trine and throw 100? Does he do like jump squats with 225 or something like that? Because it's, you're right, it's very compact. 
you know, like even to like the naked eye, it's really hard to appreciate like an aggressive hip shoulder separation. The only comp that, that I can really find like in, in our realm is like watching like Brad Hand, who's another closer that, that we train with the Indians. You know, Brad's delivery almost looks like he's not even trying because it's so, you know, kind of compact. It, you know, so yeah. what, are, what are the things that are going through your mind, like both from like a, in the grand scheme of things from a training standpoint, um, but also from a mechanical standpoint, what are the things that allow you to make such a compact delivery work? You know, what are the cues that you're giving yourself to make sure that you're, you're still throwing 101 mile an hour turbo sinkers, but you're doing it with what, what looks to the outside is so little effort. Well, I think it's a combination of having the right people in my life at the right time, giving me different keys, you know. A, training with you was a huge blessing. And then being in D.C. through the minor league system with Paul Menhart um, was huge. He was the not so much of like pitching with power, but like having a better feel for what you're throwing. Everything that I throw, I think spin now. So like and, and that kind of like correlates. How do I create spin? Well, in my mind, it was late hand speed. So like I try to like just speed my hand up late. And I think that helps me have a higher spin rate on my sinker than most. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people probably look at it as, you know, guys with high spin rate don't have good sinkers. Well, I mean, that doesn't make sense to me then because I feel like my sinker is pretty good mm-hmm. and it has a higher spin rate. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think one thing that, uh, that uh, Bob Boone told me was, hey, look, it's impossible for you to throw a ball you know, this in his words, you can't throw a ball under 95. Don't try to throw it harder because then you're inconsistent. He's like, just get your arm up and then throw the baseball. And so for me, that was a cue. And it took took him telling me that for like two years, like for it to really set in. And it's just more or less like you can't create velocity before foot strike. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Like everything before like, like your foot hitting, if you can control that and be consistent at a, at a good balance point, like you can control the zone. And so for me, if I'm – if I'm balanced and my arm is up at foot strike and then I try to explode, then, then I'm a lot more consistent around the plate. Like mm-hmm. I can control the sinker down and in for a strike or the sinker down and in for expand or the four seamer glove side or a berry slider versus a strike slider. Mm-hmm. You know, it comes and goes. Pitchers know like sometimes your cues, you forget them or you're not, you're not in the right thought process. Cause sometimes, sometimes things like, um, like an off season, trying to pick up a baseball again to throw, you forget yeah. a couple of your cues. So it's, it's a constant like battle trying to find everything's timing. And last year was a great like situation for me. Cause I found it fairly early and it just rode through the season and mm-hmm. I was able to see what I, I was capable of, of doing now. That's a pretty extreme in my opinion season. I, I don't know if that'll ever happen again. I hope it does, but whatever, you know, like what for me, the biggest thing is how can I worry about like, Step one, and that's mentally see what I want to throw, and then, and then be in a good position at foot strike. So, mm-hmm. arm up and then throw. Um, those are those are cues for me, and I feel like, I feel like arm speed is, in my mind, and you you're the kinetic, you know, guru here. So you tell me if there's some some truth to this. I feel like arm speed starts at the core. And I don't know if that's if that if there's truth to that, but for me, if my core is engaged and I'm and I'm actively firing it through at the same time I'm throwing, then like, I feel like it takes a load off my arm. Yeah. The thing I I'll use as an analogy sometimes, and I, and I love your, you can't create velocity before front foot strike. It's, it's an amazing point. Um, I think the mistake a lot of people make is if you're too aggressive too early and with the wrong direction from your back leg, 
it's no different than starting a road trip where you start driving in the wrong direction. You're going to have to make some pretty substantial corrections later. You're going to have to drive faster. You're going to have to turn the wheel harder to get back online. And for you, what you do incredibly well is you create really good direction from your back hip. You don't worry about trying to get crazy far down the mound. You know, there isn't that big drift with the knee towards third base that you have to correct. So instead of being aggressive early, you're able to you know, power that late arm speed because you're, you're in a good position to accelerate the baseball. Um, and I, I love the, the talk about like, you know, thinking late arm speed, um, cause that's something that we, we always teach to, to our guys. And so here's a question for you. So, um, okay. you've o- over the years, you, you've evolved. Like I remember last year we were texting, it was probably like early May and I was watching yeah. one of your outings and I'm like, dude, are you ripping off cutters? And you're like, oh, yeah, I was just playing catch with it. It seemed pretty good. So, yeah. And then, like, I think there was a game a week and a half later where you, you had a save on, like, 12 pitches. And you threw 11 cutters with two punch outs. And it was filthy. So I, I, I'm really curious, you know, like, what for you goes into the concept of, like, pitch design? Because I think you, you know, people don't know, but, you know, you've got a, a super high spin rate four seam that you can play to. You've got, obviously, the one seamer, which we'll talk about. You've got a great slider. So you're, not a whole lot of relievers are throwing four pitchers out of the pen, but they're also not just, like, picking up a cutter and catch plays. So do you think that's that the mechanics you have and the late arm speed you have allow you to to effectively tinker and learn on the fly, or is it something else? I think uh, the one thing I've been fortunate, it's not like I've sit here and, like, done all this research on how I'm supposed to throw a baseball. You know, it's just kind of, it's kind of come natural. And at the same time, I've had the right people, like I said earlier, to teach me a couple small keys. Mm -hmm. But my delivery is what it is. You know, we all grow up with a certain delivery. That's what it's going to be. And I'm fortunate that it's, it's a fairly simple delivery. There's nothing crazy about it. I don't have to like, I'm not like thinking triple extension or like, you know, snot flying arm, elbows, everything, you know, like I'm just, I'm just trying to be consistent around the zone. Mm -hmm. I think with that mindset and the way that my mechanics work it does allow me to do some things that might be a little easier like to learn some pitches but it does not make it easy to learn a pitch the one thing that i remember in dc there's two people i can give credit to with the pitches that i've learned and it's max scherzer and tanner roark um and i'll say tanner roark because i didn't just start picking up a cutter i had never truly trusted a cutter to throw in a game until I got into a situation here in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started in 2017 when I first came over, I threw it against the Astros and it, you know, when a team doesn't know that you have a cutter, obviously you're going to get better results. Yeah. But now that teams know I have a cutter, there's a little bit more of a pitchability like aspect to it. I've got to like learn to set the pitch up. I've got to like, you know, pitch to different areas to allow for better success. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Tanner was, I'd play catch with him a couple times and he'd be like, throw cutter. I was like, how do you throw yours? And he'd show me and I'd throw it and it would move. And he's like, why don't you throw that in the game? I was like, cause I don't trust it. And, you yeah. know, <laughs> and when I first got there to DC, there was times when, you know, there was a staff member that said, you know what, don't get beat with your third best pitch. Mm-hmm. Okay. So sinker slider, it is eliminate one. If I can't throw one for a strike and, good luck you know so it's like um the more pitches you have in your bag the easier it allows you to get through some some like bad days i guess or make your good days a lot more efficient so you can be ready for back-to-backs and then back-to-back-to-backs so um yeah i took it over to oakland and i started throwing in a game one time i remember the day that it became like a pitch that i really was going to use as opposed to like a show pitch yep 
it was against the Diamondbacks at home last year. And uh, I was in the pen throwing it. I'm like, man, this thing, I can actually see it darting late and it's real lateral. It doesn't have a ton of depth. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to take us into the game. And Lou Croy was catching me. I said, Hey Lou, you know, like cutter's good in the pen. Let's call it a couple times. And so Jake Lamb was up first. I threw all cutters and he fouled a couple off and then like swung through, but like fouled it into the glove of Luke Roy for the strikeout. And then the next guy was Del Scalso and it was like cutter swing and miss strike one cutter foul ball cutter ground out. And I was like, okay, why would I not throw this again? And the next guy was, uh, my gosh, I can't even think of his name right now. It was like a, like a shortstop outfielder that they had before Ahmed, but, um, I threw him a cutter first pitch ground out. And I was like, that was super quick and efficient. And why not try to use that more? So it kind of evolved into a pitch that I relied on heavy at times last year, not just to lefties, but to righties. And, um, you know, that's the four seamer was something that evolved in 17 to get guys off my sinker. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, mixing the four seamer cutter combo, it's just like I've got one that's straight, I got one that cuts, and I have one that sinks. So, as a hitter, I think you have to decide which way it's going to go. And I don't care if I like to me a swing and miss is weak contact. Like I don't mm -hmm. care if it's a strikeout or a ground out or a pop up. Like there's times where you want to go get a strikeout, and that's great. Yeah. But you know, I'm just trying to miss a barrel. Yeah. You know, so and the, the situation dictates itself. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and if I need to change speed, then I've got a slider and. Yeah. You know, this year I've been trying to tinker with my changeup more. Um, I haven't really used it in a game yet, but in 17 it was a good pitch for me. So um, just to play catch with the changeup and try to bring it bring it back from time to time, I think will be uh, – it would just be nice to have something soft move in the opposite way. Absolutely. Yep. Well, and, and so, you know, we played catch before, and I always joke it's like the most terrifying game of catch I've ever, you know, had simply because <laughs> you're – you throw one seam and, you know – whether a one-seamer is differentiated from a two-seamer in the context of what I'm going to say is, you know, another point, but everything is so heavy. Like, that's the thing people can't appreciate. That's why, to me, it's it's different. Like, I've, I've played catch with C-Shack a ton over the years, and, and Steve is, you know, his his two-seam is really nasty. It, yes, doesn't, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't knock you over. It's not a bowling ball. Um, it's late. You know, it, it kind of handcuffs you more often than not. Um, but with yours, it's just like this ball could literally like knock me over. I remember we were throwing in Palm, at Palm Beach Gardens High School, what, two spring trainings ago. And I was, uh, I think you had the wind at your back and I was on the left field line. And I, there were like a couple balls that ran to, uh, to your arm side that I think almost dislocated my shoulder. So, <laughs> so tell me, like, you're, you're pumping my tire too much right now. Uh, well, you, you got me before. So here's, <laughs> here's my question is what led to the one seamer? You know, how did, how did it, help you as compared to the two seamer you originally had who taught it to you and you know i'm, I'm actually gonna throw a picture of it up in the show notes because i know you you snapped one for me a while back but what's what's the backstory on that well you know it's funny like nobody ever taught me a one seamer i just have always thrown a two seamer and it the way that i release it because everybody's arm path is different the way you know they finish a pitch is different the way that i've released it is honestly it's just it comes out as a one seam and it's not like i'm you know, straight up two seam. I'm not like a power one seam, like maybe a Stroman, you know, really kind of angles his finger across like heavy. Um, I'm, I'm kind of like in between, like, I just kind of want my middle finger to kind of rub the inside edge of that seam. And, uh, I've honestly thrown it since like maybe fourth grade. 
It's, it's what you know. Just a, I've always I got one of those Roger Clemens baseballs yep. that said two seamer slash sinker, and then there's a four seamer grip and a slider and a curveball and a changeup, and all it does is it has different colored fingerprints, and it has like yeah. a key on the side of it. You remember seeing these things? Absolutely. And um, you know, I was just like, oh, I'll throw that, and then so I just it always felt more comfortable to me to throw that, and my dad was like, well, if you can throw one that moves, why why not do that? And so. I remember my mom saying I, she could actually see the ball move from behind the plate when I was a kid. Well, that's probably the gravity pulling it down, right? <laughs> so it wasn't really like me creating movement. But in my mind, I was like, all right, well, I'm always going to throw this pitch instead. So, you know, that's what I did. And um, it's just evolved over the years with my mechanical tweaks, I think, allows me to be in better position for it to have, you know, sinking action. So Absolutely. that's intriguing. Yeah, so- not, no, no crazy, no crazy. uh a crazy story other than the fact that I've thrown it for my whole life. <laughs> no. So, you know, baseball wide, and you kind of answered this question before, I think, as we touched on the forcing a little bit, but, you know, there's an increasing shift away from sinker only guys. Um, hitters mm-hmm. have cha- changed their approaches. Obviously, the, the launch angle revolution is upon us. Um, you know, and, and you're a guy who's got a one of the best sinkers in baseball, right? You've, you've got, you know, at sometimes, you know, 101, it's a turbo sinker in, in your back pocket, but you've even seen that you know, there, there are changes you need to make to overcome that. And, you know, that's, that's evidenced in part by, you know, the results that change from when you went Washington here to, to Oakland. So how can a sinker ball guy continue to have success? You know, if they don't necessarily have one-on-one in, the, in their back pocket, where do you go to, to start with them? Well, I mean, are you talking about in regards to just overall success? Like, yeah. Or what, like, what's, what's, first righties or I, you, take it however you want it is what I would okay. say. Okay. So I think you just have to understand what hitters are trying to do. Like anytime you have something hard moving into a hitter, it's going to be a lot harder for them to put a good swing on than something hard moving away, in my, in my opinion. Because I've seen percentages of lefties against me, like before I got to Oakland, like lefties average against me was like 360 off my sinker. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how is that possible when my whole, lot, my whole career in D.C. they're telling me, it's like, oh, that's your pitch, it's the best pitch, it's going to be your high percentage pitch. Throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it, you won't get beat. How is that a thing? Well, in my opinion, my sinker is really, really good. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it can be a bat path pitch. If guys yeah. have an opposite field approach. Hitters are good, too. Of, <laughs> yeah, hitters are really good. Like, no. you have to give them credit. Like, I watched Frankie Montas go out and face uh, – who were we just playing? Not Seattle. Was at home? The Reds. Who else was it? Oh, the Indians. Face the Indians. And all they did was opposite field approach, and he has a power sinker, too. And they just flipped it the other way, flipped it the other way. And they singled him to death in one inning. And it was like, you got to be kidding me. Well, it's still a bat path. So you have to make them uncomfortable. How do you make people uncomfortable? It's pitch inside. And, you know, like, yeah, you have to mix up away and inside and change speeds, elevation, all that stuff. But, I mean, you see people pitch inside. It's like you want to know why there's home runs hit. Everybody tries, oh, take the sting out of the bat away. Well, all these guys have – you know, starting to get longer swings, launch angle, you know, it's just, you know, put it in the air and let it fly. And I think if you pitch in with velocity and you're aggressive, like why do you think a cutter has been a great pitch for everybody this year? Mm-hmm. Look at the evolve, the evolution of the cutter this year. Everybody who has like, uh, who's added a new pitch. I saw an article on MLB, like these top pitches that are like making these, um, evolving steps for these pitchers in the in the game and there's like five guys on there out of the 10 or not even the 10 maybe there's like seven out of the 10 that are throwing cutters and like their cutter uh batting average against is like sub 100 or low 100 absolutely it's and 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 it's because they're able to get the reverse um 
the reverse, uh, I don't know, whatever, like lefty versus righty, usually, you know, your reverse splits aren't very good. Like me versus lefties was always a struggle. Well, then I developed a cutter and a four seamer and it's pretty even, if not better at times. Yep. Okay. Cause, because now they don't have to worry about, they can dive, right? Like, okay, well, everything he throws is going to move away. He has nothing hard. That's going to make me feel uncomfortable about diving over the plate. Absolutely. Right. So now I, now I make something inside, maybe something that moves in on them mm-hmm. and I can get bad swings or it forces them to take more of a balanced approach. It takes their a swing off the pitch away. That's to me why this cutter is such a great evolution, which shows why like you can't just, you know, some people like Britain, Britain's a phenomenal sinker. Like I think he's got the best sinker in the game mm-hmm. because the guy throws nothing but sinkers and he continues to have weak contact after weak contact after weak contact. You know, some people argue, oh, righties have different approaches than lefties. Their swings are different, blah, blah, blah. Well, to me, they're all big league hitters and it don't matter. The guy still mm-hmm. does what he does. Yep. So, and I, and I know I have a really good sinker too, but the facts are the facts. You know, I can sit here and try to have an ego about it or I can sit here and try to actually make an approach that's going to make me better. And so, you know, working with some, you know, analytics on the side, Michael Fisher out in the Bay Area, you know, this guy kind of opened my eyes to some things and mm-hmm. it's, it's taken off. So, um, you know, the evolution of the cutter, pitching guys in, you know, mixing it away. I don't want to be predictable. I don't want to be like, okay, yeah. I'm only going to throw this guy in because that's what statistics say I should do. Well, pitching in allows for more success away. Pitching away allows for more success in, more success in. So it just, it's, it's all about trying to keep hitters off balance. And if you can add something that makes them uncomfortable inside, yeah, it opens up a lot more. Absolutely. And if you look at the guys who are really consistently having success across baseball, it's, you know, it's especially as starting pitchers, they're expanding the zone up and down and they're doing in and out. Um, and yeah. they've got a ton of stuff. So guys can't guess as much. Um, you see it with Scherzer, you see it with Kluber, you see it with DeGrom, well, all these guys. Well, look at Max even, yeah. right? Like yeah. I'm not going to speak for Max, mm-hmm. but from an outsider's perspective is he was nasty his first year in DC. Mm-hmm. And what did he say? He's like, I'm going to have a better year this year. Yeah. And what did he add? A cutter. Yep. So now he's got this devastating slider, this wipeout changeup, his hard riding four seamer, and okay, so he has he doesn't have maybe no, nothing that moves hard in on a guy. So I'm going to make these guys more aware that they can't just cheat to something hard over the plate or sit soft and react. You know, like it's hard to do anything against Max. Like right, like the guy's he's, he's an incredible talent. Yep. But when you when you look at what he added to allow for more success, like that pitch that moves in at like 88 to 90 mm-hmm. for him is a game changer as opposed to his 85, 88 slider that's down. Right. And absolutely. You, so. and, and here's a question for you too. And if you ask, you know, 99% of people in baseball, the, you know, the hardest, you know, pitch to consistently execute. It's a, it's a really good glove side fastball. You just have a really long way to go. And the hard part is like, unless you, you know, are spectacular, it's hard to front hip that thing. And, you know, because if you, if you don't get it in enough, you're going to, you're going to wind up finding a barrel in many cases. Does the cutter give you more weight? I mean, you obviously have another option, but yeah, you also, for- it's, it's, it's drifting glove side. So, you know, you have a little bit more room for air. You're going to hit a guy instead of finding a barrel. It's nice to know that you can, you can try to, you know, increase margin of error. Yeah. You know, like the fact that you can have more wiggle room for success, that's what you're always trying to do. You're just trying to, um, so no, you're, you're just trying to, you're trying to create, you're just trying to create more, more room for success with, uh, with, you know, a greater margin of error. And, you know, you look at a lot of pitchers now, you know, 
the whole I think I think what some some teams do well without like saying specific teams, they do a good job of of just saying where can I have the most margin of success for seamers? I'm just going to throw them in the upper third of the zone and not worry about in and out. Yeah. Or hey, this hitter handles ends, but he struggles up. So I'm just going to stay middle away and up and just throw the crap out of it. You know, or hey, sliders, just keep them bottom third of the zone to chase. Yeah. You know, so you look for areas where you have greater margin of success so you don't have to worry about, you know, dotting the corner of the plate or being perfect. You know, the whole scouting report thing of where, like, true paint down and away is a good pitch. Well, no, duh. You know, yeah. like, nope, nobody, <laughs> nobody, you know, there's, there's few pitchers out there that are like, okay, I'm going to live on the corner yeah. and stay on the corner the whole game, and that's going to make me successful. That's, that's sustainable. why they are successful, yep. right? Like, why was Greg Maddox so good? Because he had nasty movement and great control, Yeah. right? Like, of course he's going to be successful. He put in all that hard work, and he's a very gifted individual. Like, you see guys across the league right now that are still doing that. You know, like, you think of, you know, Kyle Hendricks. Yeah. That guy, you know, most people in the league are, like, 95, 90 to 95 as starters. And you have these guys that pitch, like him, with great movement and, and control. It's, you know, that's that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Is the, the trend in baseball now is not so much – Hey, let's control the zone. It's like, hey, let's power the zone. Mm-hmm. And so, guys, how can you create success? Like, okay, well, I'm going to find a corner or like a, a larger spectrum of where I can have, you know, a margin of error that's greater for me to have success. So, elevated four seamers, sliders below the zone, changeups outer half, cutters in. Don't worry about if it's up or down. You know, like, yep. so that's kind of like I think a trend in the game right now. That's awesome. You know, to, to combat some of the offensive trends. Um, so, here's a question for you. Uh, you know, you came up as a starter, but you obviously switched to the pen. Um, you know, that was a, a change that, you know, happened in Washington, but you, know, you thrived even more so when you went to Oakland. You know, there were some growing pains, but, you know, what were the biggest adjustments you had to make going starter to reliever? Um, you know, what, what were the things that you struggled with and what was what came very naturally for you in that regard? In, um, in the transition? Yeah. From starter to reliever? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, the, the starting thing was – if you had success, it was a great five days. Yeah. And if, if you had a bad outing, it sucked for five days. <laughs> so, you know, that to me is starters. The, the, there's two different types of mentalities and, um, you know, being able to, to cope and find internal motivation mm-hmm. is, is a great quality for a starter. And I think all successful starters have to have that and they do. And, um, you know, it's great to be able to walk out there and say I'm a workhorse for at least seven innings. Yeah. You know, to be that guy to go out there and just, you know, hopefully dominate a lineup for seven innings or keep your team in the game for seven innings and once every five days your team can rely on you, that's that's a great feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like when I transitioned to the bullpen, I my goal was always to be like, if you're a starter, you're one of the best let's say 30 teams, five starters, 150 pitchers in the game, right? Because you're a starter in the big leagues, right? Like your stuff plays for multiple innings. Now, bullpen arms, their stuff plays for multiple innings, but can they keep that up for multiple innings? That's the issue, right? Mm -hmm. So like when I went to the bullpen, my goal was like, I don't want to be a middle relief guy. I don't want to be a scrap inning guy. Like if I'm going to pitch, I want to be the best at what I do. Mm -hmm. And so like my goal was to always achieve either, you know, at first it was like, be a setup guy, learn, how those closers do their job. Then it was like, at some point I want to have a chance to close. And I was blessed enough that even after I failed in DC, that I was given another opportunity. And, you know, I don't know how long it'll last or, you know, whatever it is, you know, that's all in God's timing. Like I'm going to 
pursue it and try to learn and be a sponge and do the best I can for my teammates for as long as I can. But, you know, I, I love the thrill of closing and mm-hmm. knowing that the team, you know, puts their trust in you to, to go out and, and, and lock down a win after they've, you know, grinded their tails off for nine innings. So um, I think the biggest thing is maybe just arm prep. Yeah. You know, when you're in the bullpen, you have to learn, you have to learn to keep your body ready every day. So it's, you know, get your cardio in. It's find a workout routine and stick with it. Even if you're sore, you have to like trust the process. There's no perfect time to do it. You just got to do it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So for me, it's like, you know, the first day of every series, I'm in there doing a full body workout and, and I just have to trust it. And, you know, I'll listen to my body. If it's, if it's pretty tired, you know, Hey, Cuffy, our strength coach, you know, I'll be like, Mm -hmm. Hey, let's push it back a day. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it's once a series I'm working out. And then for me, it's like, Come sixth inning, I'm doing a full. I'm stretching everything. That was I'm my not, next question. I'm What's, not trying to get super limber, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to get active mm-hmm. and um, make sure that my my arm and my core is stretched out mm-hmm. pretty dang good. And um, and I'm I'm not just like stretching, but I'm doing like active movements. I want I want to do some type of light resistance with with my arm, with activating my shoulder. You know, Drew Storm taught me that. He goes, "You shouldn't." you shouldn't feel like you need more than three pitches to be hundred percent off the mound when your name's called. And I was like, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, your body should feel like it's ready to fire. Like the moment you get on the mound, like you're going to take three or four pitches to find your mechanics. Yeah. And after that you should be good. Don't like, get, re- don't get ready. Stay ready. Yeah. Don't just, don't use those, those bullets on the mound to get loose and warm. Like you should be loose and warm before your name's called on. So that way when you're on the mound, you're using those bullets to dial in your command, to dial in your feel. Oh, it's not, it's not as sharp right now. What am I doing? Oh, keep my front side in and, and finish late. Like it's just little things like that, that help you. So you're not wasting bullets and you're not having like a 30 pitch warm up. You're 15 pitches and you're, you're going along with the, the guy ahead of you in case you need to come in or it's 15 pitches and I'm good until I go in the game. Absolutely. That way you're fresh for days to come. What about uh, like, so game day routine, obviously you mentioned that, you know, you're, you're getting going once the, you know, the, the game is actually happening. What are you doing? Say it's a 7 PM game. um, You need to get to the field at X time. Are you playing catch pregame? Do you like to save those bullets? Um, I know everybody's a little bit different in that regard. Adam Ottavino doesn't throw pregame very much. Um, Some guys do like to do it. So what's your, what's your take on in-season throwing? In-season throwing? Like I like to just listen to my arm. You know, mm-hmm. if I feel like my stuff isn't very crisp, I feel like it's important to long toss because it means that I'm probably cutting down my arm path and I'm mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm and I'm cutting myself off as a pitcher. Yep. So I want to I want to lengthen it out and make sure my delivery is is compact. But I you know I'm I'm getting good extension. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it might be a long toss like once every four days. Yep. Uh, but for the most part, I'm you know 150 every day. Yep. And um, just get it out there, bring it in, get a feel, and call it quits. So. Absolutely. Uh, I like to I like to throw I like to throw with with downhill angle every day. Yep. Uh, even if it's just for five fastballs, just let me get my let me get my angle, let me get the feel, and then call it. And um, you know that worked for me last year, and just trying to transition it over again this year. And yeah, you, you've uh, so I'm curious. Um, you mentioned that you're you're a long toss guy. It's you know it's out to 150. You're you're not like a 300 plus guy though. You very rarely actually throw. No. That so. What's, so what, what does long to toss to me mean to you? Yeah. Okay. So long toss is like is to you. <laughs> to me, it's like it's not about throwing as hard as you can. It's literally an eighty-five to ninety percent effort, mm-hmm. and it's if your eighty-five ninety percent gets you to one eighty that day, 
that's all it takes you. If it takes you to 300, then 300 it is. But you're never out there trying to like tax your arm to the point where you're at fatigue. It's, yep. it's literally just trying to lengthen your extension. You're and taking it for a walk. No. Yeah, exactly. And that- that's, the, that's what I learned in DC was, you know, as a starter was, hey, after you pitch, if you're hanging, you have to go out. Even even if it's just 90 feet that day, like you have to go out and throw. It's important. It's like a recovery stretch, right? It's not it's not so much for like your arm to build strength, mm-hmm. you know. Which you you guys might argue something different. I don't really know the science behind it, but for I, me, I, yeah, when I was out there long tossing, it was to get a nice stretch and lengthen out the muscles that are sore and, mm-hmm. and beat up. That's Absolutely. all it was. I love the Alan Jager quote, uh, impress me on the way in, not on the way out. So yeah, that's know. a good, I've never heard that. That's a good quote. And, and if you, you know, if, if you, you, you obviously shares are thrown up over the years that his, you know, even, even <laughs> back when he's 300 plus, it's, it's, it's actually not like something. I don't think you, I've ever seen some, Max throw a baseball that far. And, and you know what? There's a, there's like a specific three or so week block in like January into February where he really does let it eat and it's out there at, you know, 330 plus. But then even when he's, you know, working his way back, he's at 300 feet and still working his way back. It's not, it's not what you would, you don't see the crazy yeah. head jerk that you know Max for, but you see yep. that on the way in. You see some, some balls on a line that are really aggressive from 120 into 60. So um, that's, that's really interesting. So, you know, one of the challenges of, of pitching out of the pen is never knowing when you're going to throw. Um, and, you know, so obviously you talk to, to throwing and lifting. What about like the mentality side of things? Like, are, are you a big visualization guy on the day of a game? Like, you know, I know guys that'll, you know, they go into like, you know, a seclusion in the third inning and spend three innings getting their mind right. What do you do like once the game gets going? Well, I'm honestly like I have a cup of coffee and I'm watching the game inside. Mm-hmm. And I pull out my scouting reports and I just watch the hitters and yep. I see what they're doing, what they're trying to do, if it correlates to what I'm going to try to do. Because sometimes, you know, we might have, like Mike Fires and myself, totally different pitchers. Like mm-hmm. the guy is a high spin rate guy, 88 to 93, and like curveball, splitter type changeup thing, right? So like for me, not really a correlation. But what I can see is four seamers at the top of the zone and how they're taking swings on them, you know? Yep. And if they correlate to my heat map. Mm-hmm. So, like, I try to pay attention to, you know, my game plan and maybe what they're trying to do as hitters that day or if things have changed. And, you know, if a guy comes in before me that has similar stuff, trying to pay attention to what they're doing. So, um, I'm not really, I'm not really, like, doing anything crazy. I don't, yeah. I'm not yeah. a big fan of, like, like... What do you call it? You're, uh, you're not listening to death metal and banging your heads through drywall or no, anything like that. No, I'm more of like I'm more chill music. Yeah. I you know I listen to some calm music just yeah. to kind of give me an attitude of gratitude. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm just thankful for every opportunity I have. To be honest with you, so yeah. I like um, it. Yeah, I'm so, not really anything crazy. So this is this is a, a very general question. So but I'll use an example, right? So injuries often can be a blessing in disguise. And we talked about you know the the snafu with your shoulder as you were the Marlins for for you know thirty six hours. And you know ultimately what what introduced us was that your your low back was a little bit cranky, um, and your agent yep. actually put us in touch. So thank you, Adam. Um, and they made you rethink some of your your approaches to to training. So talk about you know it's challenging because you're a guy who had, you know, good level of success. You're pitching the mid nineties. You're working way through an organization. You know, your agent tells you, Hey, I need you to go to Boston for the off season. It's like, all right, what are you, what are you talking about? Who is this guy? But talk- I actually approached Adam about training. The there you go. Level. All right. For the record. So, t- <laughs> so here, here's what I'd say. Talk about the challenges of being open-minded 
but at the same time, not yielding on absolutely everything you've had success with. Cause you've, you know, you've done, uh, you know, some of your own like scouting stuff at this point, you know, and, and it's opened your eyes to, you know, what eventually led to the cutter and all that. So, you know, how would you describe your, your, your approach to being open-minded, but at the same time, not being gullible? Well, I'll put, I'll preface it this way. I'm a, I'm a stubborn turd, um, <laughs> but any, I, I'd be naive to say that, you know, the old college adage is, Hey, you know, you get these egos as a pitcher and your pitching coach comes up and he's like, dude, if you could execute a fastball in the bottom corner at 95 every time, you wouldn't be at South Dakota State. <laughs> so go in there and go work on it. And it's like, you know, nobody has ever had a zero ERA, walking nobody, striking everybody out on three pitches. And, you know, <laughs> nobody's ever done it. So um, I feel like there's always something you have to learn. And it's like, I'm not the strongest individual. So when I came to you, it's like, okay, I obviously have weaknesses. How am I going to get better? I'm not going to sit here and try to tell somebody else how to do their job. But at the same time, when you find something that works, it's one thing I came to terms with, is, and I, thankfully in high school, was if I find something that works, stick to it until I find something better. And so, But, but be open-minded to trying new things. Yeah. So I don't always receive criticism the best way. In fact, I know my face just looks... <laughs> like construed and like painful, like I'm fighting it. Mm -hmm. um, but in my mind, I'm processing it, right? It through, because yeah. I hate sucking at things and yeah. it drives me nuts. And so whenever I hear something new that's potentially challenging to my thought process, I'm like, like, dude, seriously, back off. Like I've been doing this for, oh wait, you've been doing it for 50 years. Okay, never mind. I'll listen <laughs> to you. Like, so so I'm li I listen to what they have to say and I try to pay attention. It's like the whole Bob Boone thing. He's talking about my arm. I was like, uh -huh, okay, I get it, whatever. And so I, you know, this, I finally start clicking and listening to what he's saying. And, um, you know, it, it helped me a ton. Like That's awesome. I've made strides for me. It's like always be open to, to criticism and learning. And then also, but make them, it. make them justify it though. Make yeah, them prove like, it to you. 100%. Yeah. It just can't be like, trust me, I've done this for years. Like, that's not yeah. a good, that's not a good answer. Like yeah. the answer has got to be something, you know, like in your case, scientifically proven, yep. um, you know, in other cases, it's like, Hey, this is what works for me. I don't have the perfect arm path, mm -hmm. but guess what? I can repeat it really well. So yep. I'm going to stick with that. Absolutely. And so that's a great, that's a great segue into the next question. So you, you, you bounced around a few different colleges and you've been in multiple MLB organizations. You could even argue you've been in maybe two Oakland A's regimes, um, yeah. you know, with the change. So what are some of the characteristics of the coaches who have been the most impactful, you know, the ones that have helped you the most? Well, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of go through some, you know, for me, the most impactful pitching coaches I've had. And one's one, it's not even a pitching coach that I had. He was a coordinator. The first one I ever had was Gil Patterson. And he's still Gil's the best. I love Gil. Gil. Gil's got some ways, some quirky ways that guys are like, I'm not picking up a stick and waving it like I'm in Hogwarts. I'm not doing it. <laughs> But it's supposed to help you. The stick gives you constant tension, right? Like it's resistance in the air, and it helps you focus more on your body and how to control it without a baseball. So, but he he was really mentally like good at preparing me mm -hmm. um, for failure and how to handle it, mm -hmm. and then also with kind of forcing the 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 habits that I needed to put in the work to be consistent. And then when I got the when I got the DC Paul Menhart who I will always give a lot of credit to has, you know, he's just, he's a brilliant mind. He knows how to push the buttons of all of his players. And um, he taught me how to spin a baseball. He taught me 
a new throwing process. And that's when I got to, you know, talking about trusting new things. When I got to DC, I, uh, you know, I was like, these guys, they traded for you for a reason, like trust their process and see what happens. And that's when my velocity jumped because I bought into their throwing program. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm not gonna say jumped from like peaks, but jumped as in like the median velocity. Yeah, it was there when you needed every time. Yeah, exactly. That's so, awesome. um, but Paul, Paul, Paul is really good. He actually even, he even joked around and was like trying to get me to watch, uh, when I was in AAA as a starter the year I bounced up and down mm-hmm. with DC in my debut, he was like, I'm going to make, I, I need you to download this movie and it's your homework to watch it. And I was like, what? He's like, you're watching Bull Durham. I was like, I'm not stinking Nuke Lelouch. He's like, you are. I was like, no, I'm not. And so that was just a joke. I think he was just messing with me, trying to push my buttons. So, um, yeah, I need, I needed some mental toughness. I just, you know, when you're younger, you don't want to believe that you're that guy. Mm-hmm. Now, here's, here's another one that's a good lesson for the younger ones out there. You have zero social media. Now, zero. And, exactly. and, and you wear that badge very, very proudly. It's liberating. So it's, it's a conscious decision to avoid it, or is that just something that never intrigued you? Heck yeah, man. Like there, half of the issues in society today stem from social media. And that doesn't mean that like there's not positives. Like there's a lot of positives to social media. Mm-hmm. But for every good intention, there's people that use it for wrong and I don't want to be a part of it. So, you know, there's I could say something with the best intentions. Yep. You know, with more, to more a, time to with a your kid group. To <laughs> yep. a select close friend group, you know, like on a social media thread, but if somebody finds it and they take it totally differently, then I'm getting blasted and I don't yep. want anything like that to happen yep. um, because I feel like I'm a kind hearted guy and mm-hmm. I have good intentions and I don't really want my name. To, that's just adds extra stress. that's not needed. Absolutely. So, it's like, uh, no point in it. not only that I've seen some of the things that are said to major league baseball closers after. Oh, trolls. Yeah, oh was, my goodness. Some of the stuff when, is on a different level of terrible. Um, my wife got a Twitter <laughs> account when I was, was it 2015? God bless second her. <laughs> yeah. We got a Twitter account because she saw somewhere that people were writing nice things about me online. So she wanted to get a Twitter account. And so she got one and, you know, I started the years like me and Aaron Barrett, kind of like these revolving setup guys for the first couple of weeks. And um, I did well for my first two outings and everybody was praising me on Twitter. And then my next two, I blew a two run lead in Philly. And my next one, I blew a two run lead in Philly. And they said, trying to suck, send them to AAA, like my grandmother, you know, all these different things. Like yeah. you can throw better. Like, I was just, and like, those are PG compared to some of the things they were saying. <laughs> so she got rid of it, and I just reinforced the reason why I don't have any social media. I love it. Because all, I see people all the time just sit on their phone yep. and watch life pass them by trying to live through other people's highlight reels. And I do not want a piece of that. Absolutely. I've got two kids and a beautiful wife, and I've got a loving family. I've got good friends like yourself. I'd rather be invested in that than on a phone or any type of social media or video game. I so. like it, man. <laughs> Very good stuff. All right, so we, we we obviously had zero transitional material on that one. So it's a good, <laughs> it's a good time to jump into the lightning round. Um, okay, lightning all round. All right, this is fun. All right, what advice would you give to a teenage Blake? To a teenage Blake is <laughs> don't try to predict your future. Just just follow your heart and try to live in God's will because there ain't nothing that you can do that's going to change what's happening. You just got to work hard. Nice. If you have a passion, you got to pursue it. Absolutely. What about college, Blake? College, Blake, stay focused. Stay focused. Don't let the external factors hinder what the end goal is. And minor league, Mike, uh, Blake Trinan. Um, baseball sucks. 
<laughs> life life throws you curveballs you just got to stay in the box and keep swinging so nice. i uh for me for me the minor leagues it's always a grind for people i was honestly it's hard for me to say a grind because i know i was blessed to have a fairly quick stint in regards to some people that devote you know a lot of years there so yeah. i understand the battle a lot of people go through mm-hmm. count my blessings and very thankful for the the people that were put in my life at the right time to allow for me to have success. Absolutely. And, and as an aside to that, you used a hitting analogy. So I should tell everybody first major league hit was off of. We're not going there. Come on now. <laughs> Clayton Kershaw. No, cause if, you know, if any, uh, yeah, I'll let other people talk about that. I, That's, I, that. I got lucky is what it's happened. A, I, I mean, looked so bad in the first at bat against him because <laughs> most people do. Um, mm-hmm. But me, especially as a pitcher on three fastballs that weren't, you know, they're right down the middle that he's like, I'm just going to throw piped fastball. I just <laughs> closed my eyes and swung and got lucky. I think was your first major league at bat against C-Sheck? It I, was. I it was. Like, and, I got, and I got, I got, I got red carded by Tyler <laughs> Clippard and Drew Storm the next day because I stood in the back of the box and didn't swing. You were <laughs> at least nine feet away from like any pitch he threw on the outside <laughs> corner. <laughs> to my defense. <laughs> my defense. Um, I didn't a didn't realize how nasty C Sheck was at the time, <laughs> and and b Matt Williams told me because I was called up to lengthen out the bullpen. He goes, if you swing at any of these pitches, you know, for lack of a better term, it's your it's, <laughs> it's your you know what. It's not going to go so, well. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, I need you to stand in the back corner of the box and don't you dare pick the bat off your shoulder. I That's love exactly it. what he told me. I was <laughs> like, <sighs> Matt Williams, this guy, like I'm not crossing him. That's an so amazing I stood in the one. back corner with the bat on my shoulder and stood straight up and three piped fastballs. <laughs> All right, so this is one I'm actually really, really intrigued to get your answer because I've heard a couple different things based on who we've talked to. Um, what's more important, stuff or command? Man, um, you know what's funny? I'm pretty sure Greg Maddox even said this. Never sacrifice stuff for command. Because the second you try to hit a spot and guide it there, your stuff is not the same. Mm-hmm. So I, I truly feel like stuff over command. Um, and I think you back that up with what you said earlier. You talked about not trying to be too cute. You know, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't matter if it's up or down as long as it's in. It doesn't matter if it's in or out as long as it's up. So. And you look at it this way too, though. It's like there's guys that go out there and – I know this is a terrible analogy, but I'm going to say this. Like, you know, let's say a position player goes out there and he's throwing 88 and he can command a, a corner. You know, like some guys are really good at just throwing BP, right? Like as a position player when they come in the pitch. They come in, they hit corners, guys rocket balls opposite field, they hit sing- singles up the middle, and it's like, well, he's technically commanding the zone a little bit, but his mm-hmm. stuff is just blah. Mm-hmm. So for me, you see guys that come in and they might be throwing – you know, 88, but they, but they have like that late ride with their fastball and they command. So some guys have both and that's what makes them successful. But I truly feel like you see the generation of stuff as opposed to command playing now because there's so much, the swings that hitters take now are so much more dialed in mm-hmm. than probably ever before. That doesn't mean there's not, and I hate saying it cause I don't, I don't know if there, you can compare apple and oranges, but there's a lot of differences between the game now yeah. and like let's say 40 years ago right but there are players in that generation that easily can transcend time right and play but the overall approach to hitters is so different and more dialed in in my opinion and that's not a knock to anything because you're only you're only competing against what you're competing against right yeah so absolutely. but i think i think truly stuff plays better 
because people try to try to be on time with with like 98 with action, yeah. you know, as opposed to 88 on the corner. Mm-hmm. It's like I think a hitter would take 88 on the corner opposed oh, yeah. to oh, yeah. 98 on the corner up and away, you know, Absolutely. just because of the stuff and they're just throwing. I like it. What so, about, I, all right. So favorite teammate of all time and why? Oh my gosh. Put me in the I've got I've got a couple, but I'll uh, I'll say I'll say two. Um I think well, I know I bet I, I bet I can guess one of them, but keep going. I'm gonna actually I'm gonna say three. Yeah. Uh Adam LaRoche. Yeah. Because he was a quiet leader who spoke spoke heavy and everybody listened. And uh, I really as a as a Christian myself, being in a clubhouse with him um really sculpted how I go about my business now as a professional. Mm-hmm. And how I can bounce my faith into this into this business. Mm-hmm. Also, Chris Heisey was a great teammate, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, Matt Belisle. Oh, Belisle's great! One of the best oh. people ever. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a, a three A to Aaron Barrett just because he's a rock star. <laughs> One of the, the yeah, Barrett. Bearcat. Oh, I know. absolutely! The fact that I didn't throw his name. That's, yeah, that, I lose brownie points. And you introduced Aaron and I, so that's uh, yeah. that's 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 an adjunct, and we love Aaron, and we're wishing him well. So yeah, he's back there soon. Um, yeah. All right, last one. What pitchers do you like to watch, and why? Oh my gosh! I mean, it was, an, it was pretty impressive watching Edwin Diaz last year, just because in division you get to watch that all the time. Um, you know, Presley right now is doing some incredible stuff. I, I watch a lot of like relievers, man, because it's it's easy for me to apply that late in the game. A lot of closers, um, but as a starter, I mean, you can't not enjoy watching Max. Mm-hmm. You can't not enjoy watching Degrom. Um, I really enjoyed watching Newcomb a little bit last year too at Lefty yep. for Atlanta. So I mean, I I can I can turn on any baseball game and just watch it at any point in the day. I know a lot of guys are like, I'm away from the field, I ain't touching baseball. Like, yeah. But for me, I'm I'm all about it. So I love it. Nice man. Well, you survived. You did an amazing job with the interview. This <laughs> like I learned a ton, and I'm sure you know all the the high school and college and pro players and coaches and parents, etc. Um, will really benefit from this. So we really yeah, appreciate so you taking too. the time. Thanks for asking me. You're Thanks a stud. For me. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode. We'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.